0: Chapter Forty Nine of The Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Age. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter Forty Nine. Thee I have loved, thou gentlest from a child, and borne thine image with me o'er the sea. Thy soft voice in my soul speak. Oh, yet live for me, Hemans. When Uncle True died, Mr. Cooper reverently buried his old friend in the ancient graveyard which adjoined the church where he had long officiated as sexton. It was a dilapidated-looking place, whose half-fallen and moss-grown stones proclaimed its recent neglect and disuse. But long before the adjacent and time-worn building gave place to a more modern and more imposing structure, the hallowed remains of Uncle True had found a quieter resting-place with that good taste and good feeling which, in latter days, has dedicated to the sacred dead some of the fairest spots on earth. A beautiful piece of undulating woodland in the neighborhood of Mr. Graham's country residence had been consecrated as a rural cemetery, and in the loveliest nook of this sweet and venerated spot the ashes of the good old lamplighter found their final repose. This lot of land, which had been purchased through Willie's thoughtful liberality, selected by Gertrude, and by her made fragrant and beautiful with summer rose and winter ivy, now enclosed also the forms of Mr. Cooper and Mrs. Sullivan, and over these three graves Gertrude had planted many a flower, and watered it with her tears. Especially did she view it as a sacred duty and privilege to mark the anniversary of the death of each by a tribute of fresh garlands, and with this pious purpose in view She left Mr. Graham's house one beautiful afternoon, about a week after the events took place which are narrated in the previous chapter. She carried on her arm a basket, which contained her offering of flowers, and as she had a long walk before her, started at a rapid pace. Let us follow her, and briefly pursue the train of thought which accompanied her on her way. She had left her father with Emily. She would not ask him to join her in her walk, though he had once expressed a desire to visit the grave of Uncle True for he and emily were talking together so contentedly it would have been a pity to disturb them and for a few moments gertrude's reflections were engrossed by the thought of their calm and tranquil happiness she thought of herself too as associated with them both of the deep and long-tried love of emily and of the fond outpourings of affection daily and hourly lavished upon her by her newly found parent and felt that she could scarcely repay their kindness by the devotion of a lifetime now and then, as she dwelt in her musings upon the sweet tie between herself and Emily, which had gained strength with every succeeding year, and the equally close and kindred union between father and child, which, though recent in its origin, was scarcely capable of being more firmly cemented by time, her thoughts would, in spite of herself, wander to that earlier formed and not less tender friendship, now, alas, sadly ruptured and wounded, if not wholly uprooted and destroyed. She tried to banish the remembrance of Willie's faithlessness and desertion, deeming it the part of an ungrateful spirit to mourn over past hopes, regardless of the blessings that yet remained. She tried to keep in mind the resolutions lately formed to forget the most painful feature in her past life, and consecrate the remainder of her days to the happiness of her father and Emily. But it would not do. The obtruding and painful recollection presented itself continually, notwithstanding her utmost efforts to repress it, and at last, ceasing the struggle, she gave herself up for the time to a deep and saddening reverie. She had received two visits from Willie since the one already mentioned, but the second meeting had been in its character very similar to the first, and on the succeeding occasion the constraint had increased, instead of diminishing. Several times Willie had made an apparent effort to break through this unnatural barrier, and speak and act with the freedom of former days but a sudden blush, or sign of confusion and distress, on Gertrude's part, deterred him from any further attempt to put to flight the reserve and want of confidence which subsisted in their intercourse. Again Gertrude, who had resolved, previous to his last visit, to meet him with the frankness and cordiality which he might reasonably expect, smiled upon him affectionately at his coming, and offered her hand with such sisterly freedom that he was emboldened to take and retain it in his grasp and was evidently on the point of unburdening his mind of some weighty secret, when she turned abruptly away, took up some trivial piece of work, and while she seemed wholly absorbed in it, addressed to him an unimportant question, a course of conduct which put to flight all his ideas, and disconcerted him for the remainder of his stay. As Gertrude pondered the awkward and distressing results of every visit he had made her, she half hoped he would discontinue them altogether— believing that the feelings of both would be less wounded by a total separation than by interviews which must leave on the mind of each a still greater sense of estrangement strange as it may seem she had not yet acquainted him with the event so deep in its interest to herself the discovery of her dearly loved father once she tried to speak of it but found herself so overcome at the very idea of imparting to the confidant of her childhood an experience of which she could scarcely yet think without emotion That she paused in the attempt, fearing that, should she on any topic give way to her sensibilities, she should lose all restraint over her feelings and lay open her whole heart to Willie. But there was one thing that distressed her more than all others. In his first vain attempt to throw off all disguise, Willie had more than intimated to her his own unhappiness, and ere she could find an opportunity to change the subject and repel a confidence for which she still felt herself unprepared, he had gone so far as to speak mournfully of his future prospects in life. The only construction which Gertrude could give to this confession was that it had reference to his engagement with Isabel, and it gave rise at once to the suspicion that, infatuated by her beauty, he had impulsively and heedlessly bound himself to one who could never make him wholly happy. The little scenes to which she had herself been a witness corroborated this idea— as, on both occasions of her seeing the lovers and overhearing their words, some cause of vexation seemed to exist on Willie's part. He loves her, thought Gertrude, and is also bound to her in honour, but he sees already the want of harmony in their natures. Poor Willie! It is impossible he should ever be happy with Isabel! And Gertrude's sympathizing heart mourned not more deeply over her own grief than over the disappointment that Willie must be experiencing— if he had ever hoped to find peace in a union with so overbearing, ill-humoured, and unreasonable a girl. Wholly occupied with these and similar musings, she walked on with a pace of whose quickness she was scarcely herself aware, and soon gained the shelter of the heavy pines which bordered the entrance to the cemetery. Here she paused for a moment to enjoy the refreshing breeze that played beneath the branches, and then, passing through the gateway, entered a carriage-road at the right, and proceeded slowly up the gradual ascent. The place, always quiet and peaceful, seemed unusually still and secluded, and save the occasional carol of a bird, there was no sound to disturb the perfect silence and repose. As Gertrude gazed upon the familiar beauties of those sacred grounds, which had been her frequent resort during several years, as she walked between beds of flowers, inhaled the fragrant and balmy air, and felt the solemn appeal, THE SPIRITUAL BREATHINGS THAT HAUNTED THE HOLY PLACE. EVERY EMOTION THAT WAS NOT IN HARMONY WITH THE SCENE GRADUALLY TOOK ITS FLIGHT, AND SHE EXPERIENCED ONLY THAT SENSATION OF SWEET AND HALF-JOYFUL MELANCHOLY, WHICH WAS AWAKENED BY THE THOUGHT OF THE HAPPY DEAD. AFTER A WHILE SHE LEFT THE BROAD ROAD WHICH SHE HAD BEEN FOLLOWING, AND TURNED INTO A LITTLE BY-PATH. THIS SHE PURSUED FOR SOME DISTANCE, AND THEN, AGAIN DIVERGING THROUGH ANOTHER AND STILL NARROWER FOOT-TRACK, "'gained the shady and retired spot "'which partly from its remoteness to the public walks, "'and partly from its own natural beauty, "'had attracted her attention "'and recommended itself to her choice. "'It was situated on the slope of a little hill, "'a huge rock protected it on one side "'from the observation of the passer-by, "'and a fine old oak overshadowed it upon the other. "'The iron enclosure, of simple workmanship, "'was nearly overgrown by the green ivy, "'which had been planted there by Gertrude's hand.' and the moss-grown rock also was festooned by its graceful and clinging tendrils. Upon a jutting piece of stone, directly beside the grave of Uncle True, Gertrude seated herself, as was her wont, and after a few moments of contemplation, during which she sat with her elbow upon her knee, and her head resting upon her hand, she straightened her slight figure, sighed heavily, and then, lifting the cover of her basket, emptied her flowers upon the grass, and with skillful fingers commenced weaving a graceful chaplet which, when completed, she placed upon the grave at her feet. With the remainder of the blossoms she strewed the other mounds, and then, drawing forth a pair of gardening gloves and a little trouble, she employed herself for nearly an hour among the flowers and vines with which she had embowered the spot. Her work at last being finished, she again placed herself at the foot of the old rock, removed her gloves, pushed back from her forehead the simple but heavy braids of her hair, and appeared to be resting from her labors. It was seven years that day since Uncle True died, but the time had not yet come for Gertrude to forget the simple, kind old man. Often did his pleasant smile and cheering words come to her in her dreams, and both by day and night did the image of him who had gladdened and blessed her childhood encourage her to the imitation of his humble and patient virtue. As she gazed upon the grassy mound that covered him, and scene after scene rose up before her, in which that earliest friend in herself had whiled away the happy hours. There came, to embitter the otherwise cherished remembrance, the recollection of that third, and seldom absent one, who completed and made perfect the memory of their fireside joys. And Gertrude, while yielding to the inward reflection, unconsciously exclaimed aloud, "Oh, Uncle True, you and I are not parted yet, but Willie is not of us. "'Oh, Gertrude!' said a reproachful voice, close at her side. "'Is Willie to blame for that?' She started, turned, saw the object of her thoughts, with his mild, sad eyes, fixed inquiringly upon her, and, without replying to his question, buried her face in her hands. He threw himself upon the ground at her feet, and, as on the occasion of their first childish interview, gently lifted her bowed head from the hands upon which it had fallen, and compelled her to look him in the face— saying, at the same time, in the most imploring accents, "'Tell me, Gertie, in pity, tell me why I am excluded from your sympathy.' But still she made no reply, except by the tears that coursed down her cheeks. "'You make me miserable,' continued he, vehemently. "'What have I done that you have so shut me out of your affection? "'Why do you look so coldly upon me, and even shrink from my sight?' added he, as Gertrude, unable to endure his steadfast, searching look, turned her eyes in another direction and strove to free her hands from his grasp i am not cold i do not mean to be said she her voice half choked with emotion oh gertrude replied he relinquishing her hands and turning away i see you have wholly ceased to love me i trembled when i first beheld you so lovely so beautiful and so beloved by all and feared lest some fortunate rival had stolen your heart from its boyish keeper but even then, I did not dream that you would refuse me, at least, a brother's claim to your affection. I will not! exclaimed Gertrude eagerly. Oh, Willie, you must not be angry with me. Let me be your sister. He smiled a most mournful smile. I was right then, continued he. You feared lest I should claim too much, and discouraged my presumption by awarding me nothing. Be it so. Perhaps your prudence was for the best. But, oh, Gertrude, it has made me heartbroken. "'Willie!' exclaimed Gertrude, with excitement. "'Do you know how strangely you are speaking?' "'Strangely,' responded Willie, in a half-offended tone. "'Is it so strange that I should love you? "'Have I not for years cherished the remembrance of our past affection, "'and looked forward to our reunion as my only hope of happiness? "'Has not this fond expectation inspired my labors, and cheered my toils, "'and endeared to me my life, in spite of its bereavements?' And can you, in the very sight of these cold mounds, beneath which lie buried all else that I held dear on earth, crush and destroy, without compassion, this solitary, but all engrossing? "'Willie!' interrupted Gertrude, her calmness suddenly restored, and speaking in a kind but serious tone. "'Is it honourable for you to address me thus? Have you forgotten?' "'No, I have not forgotten,' exclaimed he, vehemently. I have not forgotten that I have no right to distress or annoy you, and I will do so no more. But, O Gertie, my sister Gertie, since all hope of a nearer tie is at an end, blame me not and wonder not if I fail at present to perform a brother's part. I cannot stay in this neighborhood. I cannot be the patient witness of another's happiness. My services, my time, my life you may command and in my far distant home, I will never cease to pray that the husband you have chosen, whoever he may be, may prove himself worthy of my noble Gertrude, and love her one half as well as I do. "'Willie,' said Gertrude, "'what madness is this? I am bound by no such tie as you describe, but what shall I think of your treachery to Isabel?' "'To Isabel!' cried Willie, starting up, as if seized with a new idea. "'And has that silly rumour reached you too? And did you put faith in the falsehood?' "'Falsehood!' exclaimed Gertrude, lifting her hitherto drooping eyelids, and casting upon him, through their wet lashes, a look of earnest scrutiny. Calmly returning a glance, which he had neither avoided nor quailed under, Willie responded, unhesitatingly, and with a tone of astonishment, not unmingled with reproach. "'Falsehood, yes! With the knowledge you have, both of her and myself, could you doubt its being such for a moment?' Oh, Willie! cried Gertrude. Could I doubt the evidence of my own eyes and ears? Had I trusted to less faithful witnesses, I might have been deceived. Do not attempt to conceal from me the truth to which my own observation can testify. Treat me with frankness, Willie. Indeed, indeed, I deserve it at your hands. Frankness, Gertrude, it is you only who are mysterious. Could I lay my whole soul bare to your gaze, you would be convinced of its truth, its perfect truth, to its first affection. And as to Isabel Clinton, if it is to her that you have reference, your eyes and your ears have both played you false, if—' "'Oh, Willie, Willie!' exclaimed Gertrude, interrupting him. "'Have you so soon forgotten your devotion to the Belle of Saratoga, your unwillingness to sanction her temporary absence from your sight, the pain which the mere suggestion of the journey caused you, and the fond impatience which threatened to render those few days an eternity?' "'Stop, stop!' cried Willie, a new light breaking in upon him, "'and tell me where you learned all this. "'In the very spot where you spoke and acted, "'Mr. Graham's parlour did not witness our first meeting. "'In the public promenade-ground, on the shore of Saratoga Lake, "'and on board the steamboat at Albany, "'did I both see and recognize you, myself unknown. "'There, too, did your own words serve to convince me of the truth "'of that which from other lips I had refused to believe.' The sunshine which gilds the morning is scarcely more bright and gladsome than the glow of rekindled hope which now animated the face of Willie. "'Listen to me, Gertrude,' said he, in a fervent and almost solemn tone, "'and believe that in sight of my mother's grave, and in the presence of that pure spirit,' and he looked reverently upward, "'who taught me the love of truth, I speak with such sincerity and candor as are fitting for the ears of angels.'" I do not question the accuracy with which you overheard my expostulations and entreaties on the subject of Miss Clinton's proposed journey, or the impatience I expressed at parting for her speedy return. I will not pause, either, to inquire where the object of all my thoughts could have been at the time, that notwithstanding the changes of years, she escaped my eager eyes. Let me first clear myself of the imputation under which I labor, and then there will be room for all further explanations." I did indeed feel deep pain at Miss Clinton's sudden departure for New York, under pretext which ought not to have weighed with her for a moment. I did indeed employ every argument to dissuade her from her purpose, and when my eloquence had failed to induce the abandonment of the scheme, I availed myself of every suggestion and motive which might possibly influence her to shorten her absence. Not because the society of the selfish girl was essential, or even conducive to my own happiness— far from it, but because her excellent father, who so worshipped and idolized his only child, that he would have thought no sacrifice too great by means of which he could add one particle to her enjoyment, was at that very time, amid all the noise and discomfort of a crowded watering place, hovering between life and death, and I was disgusted at the heartlessness which voluntarily left the fondest of parents deprived of all female tending, to the charge of a hired nurse, and an unskilled though willing youth like myself that eternity might in miss clinton's absence set a seal to the life of her father was a thought which in my indignation i was on the point of uttering but i checked myself unwilling to interfere too far in a matter which came not within my rightful province and perhaps excite unnecessary alarm in isabel if selfishness mingled at all in my views dear gurdy and made me over impatient for the return of the daughter to her post of duty it was that i might be released from almost constant attendance upon my invalid friend and hasten to her from whom i hoped such warmth of greeting as i was only too eager to bestow can you wonder then that your reception struck cold upon my throbbing heart but you understand the cause of that coldness now said gertrude looking up at him through a rain of tears which like a summer sun-shower reflected itself in rainbow smiles upon her happy countenance YOU KNOW NOW WHY I DARED NOT LET MY HEART SPEAK OUT. "'And this was all, then?' cried Willie. "'And you are free, and I may love you still?' "'Free from all bonds, dear Willie, "'but those which you yourself clasped around me, "'and which have encircled me from my childhood.' "'And now, with heart pressed to heart, "'they pour in each other's ear the tale of a mutual affection, "'planted in infancy, nourished in youth, "'fostered and strengthened amid separation and absence.' and perfected through trial, to bless and sanctify every year of their afterlife, But Gertie, exclaimed Willie, as confidence restored, they sat side by side, conversing freely of the past. How could you think, for an instant, that Isabel Clinton would have power to displace you in my regard? I was not guilty of so great an injustice towards you, for even when I believed myself supplanted by another, I fancied that other some hero of such shining qualities as could scarcely be surpassed. "'And who could surpass Isabel?' inquired Gertie. "'Can you wonder that I trembled for your allegiance, "'when I thought of her beauty, her fashion, her family, and her wealth, "'and remembered the forcible manner in which all these were presented "'to your sight and knowledge?' "'But what are all these, Gertie, to one who knows her as we do? "'Do not a proud eye and a scornful lip destroy the effect of beauty? "'Can fashion excuse rudeness, or noble birth cover natural deficiencies?' And as to money, what did I ever want of that, except to employ it for the happiness of yourself, and them? And he glanced at the graves of his mother and grandfather. Oh, Willie, you are so disinterested. Not in this case. Had Isabel possessed the beauty of a Venus, and the wisdom of a Minerva, I could not have forgotten how little happiness there could be with one who, while devoting herself to the pursuit of pleasure, had become dead to natural affections and indifferent to the holiest of duties? Could I see her flee from the bedside of her father, to engage in the frivolities and drink in the flatteries of an idle crowd? Or, when unwillingly summoned thither, shrink from the toils and the watchings imposed by his feebleness, and still imagining that such a woman could bless and adorn a fireside? Could I fail to contrast her unfeeling neglect, ill-concealed petulance, flagrant levity, and irreverence of spirit, with the sweet and loving devotion? the saintly patience, and the deep and fervent piety of my own Gertrude. I should have been false to myself, as well as to you, dearest, if such traits of character as Miss Clinton, constantly evinced, could have weakened my love and admiration for yourself. And now, to see the little playmate, whose image I cherish so fondly, matured into the lovely and graceful woman, her sweet attractions crowned by so much beauty, as almost to place her beyond recognition— and still her heart is much my own as ever. oh Gertie, it is too much happiness. Would that I could impart a share of it To those who loved us both so well. And who can say that they did not share it, That the spirit of Uncle True was not there, To witness the completion of his many hopeful prophecies, That the old grandfather was not there, To see all his doubts and fears Giving place to joyful certainties, And that the soul of the gentle mother, Whose rapt slumbers, had, even in life, foreshadowed such a meeting, and who, by the lessons she had given to her child in his boyhood, the warning spoken to his later years, and the ministering guidance of her disembodied spirit, had fitted him for the struggle with temptation, sustained him through its trials, and restored him triumphant to the sweet friend of his infancy. Who shall say that, even now, she hovered not over them with parted wings, Realizing the joy prefigured in that dreamy vision which pictured to her sight the union between the son and daughter of her love, when the one, shielded by her fond care from every danger and snatched from the power of temptation, should be restored to the arms of the other, who by long and patient continuance in well doing had earned so full a recompense, so all-sufficient a reward. End of chapter forty nine.